Remember two weeks ago I started briefly into the book of James on the subject of faith, looking at perhaps a series on faith, hope, and love, and we only got down through uh, verse 3 in that first sermon. But I, I determined to go to Hebrews 11 from there, because here in James he says, knowing this, well, let, let's back up after he greets the tribes of Israel. He says, verse 2, My brethren, count it all joy when you fall into different temptations. Uh, and that could also probably be expanded to mean trials, troubles, tribulations, and difficulties, as well as specific temptations to sin. Uh, knowing that the trying of your faith works patience. So, our faith in God is there to be tried, to be tested, to be checked, to see how strong it is and how much it might need strengthened. And it was at that point that I departed to Hebrews 11 to show the incredible difficulties, uh, trials, troubles, and temptations that the patriarchs of old went through in order to test and to try their belief in God, their trust in God. That's what it amounted to. He would make promises to them, and then over time, those promises not yet having been fulfilled, they had to wait patiently. And patience is one of the fruits of God's Spirit there in Galatians 5. So, if we are impatient, God wants us to become patient, to be filled with His Spirit, which imparts patience. It is one of the key ingredients, then, of righteousness, is being patient. And that is how God tried Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Moses, Enoch. We went through the list last week of all those notables from the past. And that didn't even include uh, James and, and Paul and their counterparts in the early New Testament church. Nor did it include... Uh, the church here in the end time. I mean, obviously it was written a long time ago. But since Hebrews 11 was written, many, many have been added to the list that could be enumerated there in Hebrews 11. And he said, those people, as notable as they were, and as greatly as they served God and were patient waiting for His promise, they received many physical promises ultimately in their life, or lives, but they didn't receive the overall biggest promise of eternal life. And God said they did not for the express purpose of waiting until we can be joined with them when it occurs. Now that's how important He considers us as well. And we need to realize that. The 144,000 that have become the bride of Christ in the first resurrection are going to be taken from people from Adam down through the return of Christ at the end of the tribulation. No more and no less than that, but it will include many, many thousands from this end-time church. This is where he rounds out and finishes the number. And these scriptures were written for us upon whom the ends of the world have come. The whole Bible. So, they had to work through waiting for God to do what He said He would do. And we are in the same position. We've been promised that within this generation that exists at the end time, that God calls within His church, and I believe that's what Christ meant when He said, this generation shall not perish until all these things are fulfilled. And people say, well, he was talking about that generation that he was speaking to. No, the context was an end-time context. And clearly, he didn't mean those people, James, John, Jude, Paul, he didn't mean them because it didn't work that way. It didn't happen. He's not returned in glory yet. And those people all died and are gone, or are waiting in their graves. So he couldn't have meant that generation before him, 
He had to mean a different generation. Well, which one could it have been? One during the 14th century? One during the 16th century? No, he was talking of the end time, and he was talking about us. We will not all die out before these promises come to pass. And he even says that in uh, Haggai, basically, that there will be old men who saw the first, the first temple of the, end, of the end time who will live to see the second and be able to compare the two. So it's this generation he's talking about. He's talking about you and me. And some will die, and some have died. But there will be some who were there when worldwide was at its greatest spiritual strength, who will see the latter temple at its greatest spiritual strength. I've said that many times, but it's just as true today as it was when I first started preaching it about 16, plus 16 years ago. It's still going to happen. Now, the church made some mistakes years ago in saying when they thought the tribulation would begin and when Christ would return, and I recounted that, and it still hasn't happened. Well, we need patience. And didn't Christ say that that patient waiting would be difficult and that enduring to the end is the key? Patient endurance. That's what we need. He said many would fall away there in Matthew 24, but those who endure to the end will be saved. So this is an endurance race. It isn't a hundred-yard dash. It's more like a marathon. We have to stay with it until it happens. Now, God's promises to Abraham and Sarah about Isaac occurred. Uh, We could go through all the various things God promised those people in Hebrews 11 and see that they ultimately did occur. It did start raining after a hundred years with Noah. And it rained until people all drowned except those on the ark. So those things were fulfilled in time. And if we get impatient and we begin to slack off or give up because these things have not yet happened that God promises us and that we've read, then we have need of patience to wait. And that is a trying of our faith. It is a test to see if we believe God or we think, oh, these things haven't happened, so they must be wrong. No, they're what God says, and He will honor them in His time. So, God says He will cause us to learn patience, is what he's saying here. But let patience have her perfect work, that you may be perfect and entire, lacking or wanting nothing. So patient waiting is one of the key ingredients of pleasing God. And we read last week that without faith it is impossible to please God. And we show our trust our belief in Him, by patiently waiting until He chooses to fulfill the promises He has given us. Now, He has never, except in a few instances, given a specific day or date when something would happen. He finally did with Abraham and, I, uh, Abraham and Sarah about Isaac. So He's made a few specific uh, dated prophecies and there are some in the Old Testament or in the New Testament as well, such as the end of the tribulation and when the two witnesses will be killed and that type of thing. But he hasn't given us the starting date, so we don't know the ending date either. He's done that for his purposes. And part of it is that we must be tried and tested and learn patience because patience is one of those things that is a key ingredient to perfection or spiritual maturity. And as human beings, we don't tend to have it much. (laughs) We get impatient if we don't get what we want and how we want it and when and where we want it. So God has reserved that to himself and said, you wait till I'm ready and do it patiently. 
not impatiently. So then he says, <clears throat> verse 5, If any of you lack wisdom, let him ask of God that gives to all men liberally, and upbraids not, and it shall be given him. So he uses wisdom as an example of one of the things that God can give us. Well, what does wisdom consist of? Essentially, wisdom is knowing what needs to be done, how it needs to be done, and when it needs to be done, and to know things that probably should never be done in terms of sin or things that God is against. So wisdom is knowing good from evil, right from wrong, and even those things that are good to do have to be done at the right time and in the right way. So wisdom essentially is knowing how to live, how to manage your life, how to do what needs to be done at the right time and the right way. Now, it may include other things, yes, but that's essentially what it amounts to. So, when we go before God, we read His Word, which is wisdom in itself. It tells us, no matter what facet of life we're discussing, how that part of our life is to be handled. Any subject you want to bring up about human endeavor and human life is answered in this book. So, it imparts wisdom, how to live. Now, wisdom is knowing those things. Character is doing them. You know, sometimes we can know right from wrong. We can know what we ought to do. We can know when we ought to do it. But do we have the character to actually do that? So you need both. I might use an example there of... Matthew, I mean, uh, Isaiah 58. I've referred to it several times recently because it says those who apply the fast of Isaiah 58 properly will be the ones who heal the breach between man and God so that he turns his face back to his people and they will also be the restorer of paths to walk in or the way of life of God in all its aspects. And two of the key ingredients he gives us there, one is a do and one is a don't. The do is take care of the widow, the orphan, the stranger, the underprivileged, the unprivileged, those who have difficulties. And that's what Christ told us, that how we treat the naked, the hungry, the sick, and so on, is the way we treat him. So that's something that we are to do. And he says the other thing is to get rid of the pointing or the accusing finger. So one is a thing to do, the other is a thing we must get rid of. And I think those two key elements are important from this standpoint. God wants to take care of everyone. And he is particularly concerned for those who may be underprivileged and have needs that others do not have in quite the same way. And the other is all about his way of life as opposed to Satan's way of life. Satan is the great accuser. That is his job description. God calls him the accuser of the brethren. And that must stop period. We cannot accuse one another. And if we do so, we have a satanic attitude. It is a work of the flesh and a work of the devil. Now, let's understand something, brethren. God has Satan coming before his throne day in and day out to accuse you and me. And he accuses us of things we do wrong, and he will even falsely accuse us. 
And God gets truly, truly tired of that attitude. And Satan is going to be banished for a thousand years, so he cannot do that. And after he's loosed for a short season, he will be put in prison where he cannot do that forevermore. So it is a very important thing that we take care of underprivileged and that we withhold our mouth, our finger of accusing others. Those are two key ingredients God gives for us being used as ones to repair the breach between us and Him and to restore proper paths. I want to use a couple of examples that come up sometimes. People sometimes accuse, and they will say, well, I'm not saying anything behind their back that I haven't said to their face. You ever heard that one or used that one? We probably have. That doesn't work. That's wrong. God says, go to your brother alone. It is the glory of God to conceal even sin. It is the glory of human carnal kings to expose error or sin and to spread it around. You see the fundamental difference between Christ and Satan there? Christ gave his life to cover all our sins whatever they might be. And Satan has made it his goal and purpose to expose anything he can possibly expose. So it is the fundamental difference between being godly and ungodly. Well, that's why God puts such emphasis on it here in Isaiah 58 and other places. It doesn't matter. And people will also use the excuse as they point the finger, well, this is true. God says we're to speak truth. And this is true. Well, the accusation might indeed be true, but that doesn't mean that it needs to be voiced or spread abroad. Because it is the glory of God to cover sin under the blood of Christ. And if we, with our mouths, spread things about each other, then we are satanic in our approach. We need to understand that. It is one of the key ingredients of this end-time church that God is concerned about. When he scattered the church and splintered it all over, what happened? Each group began to accuse the others of being Laodicean or being unrighteous or being this or being that. And this caused further scattering, further dividing, and further confusion. It is one of the key things that Satan uses to divide the church. And it is happening all over the world and all the churches, because that is Satan's way. So is it any surprise that God says here, we need to have wisdom and if we are to be those who do the healing, then we have to refrain from those things. And where God works, that has to happen. Because we must be unified. We must, not be, we must speak the same things. That is a goal and a purpose that Paul said we are to work toward. It isn't always the case, but it's a goal. It's something we work toward. God says if we'll seek wisdom from Him, and I use that one example because it gives us something to do and something not to do, that is a key ingredient here in the end time, and it is an ingredient that is missing throughout the churches. And it is causing all kinds of problems. Anyway, verse 6, But let's, let him ask in faith nothing wavering. For he that wavers is like a wave of the sea driven with the wind and tossed. If we are to have true faith, as God defines it, where we believe things that we can't see evidence of, as Paul defined it in Hebrews 11, 1 and 2, 
We cannot waver. If God says something, it's simply true. It can't be questioned. It will happen. How deep is our belief in God? How deep is our commitment to Him and to His words that He gives us? We cannot waver. We must believe His promises will be fulfilled. For let not that man think that he shall receive anything of the eternal. Now, Christ told the disciples, and he said it more than once really in his ministry, that if we ask anything according to his will, that he will do it. If we're meeting the conditions, we're obeying him and so on, and we ask according to his will, it will happen. Now, let's take healing, because it's one of those areas where faith is required, and we'll get to that eventually here in James 5, the prayer of faith to heal the sick. We need to understand God's will at any particular or given time, do we not? Now, I have seen times in the church, back in the 50s and 60s, where there were some pretty spectacular healings, And then they began to disappear. They were more and more infrequent, and now they are quite infrequent throughout the church, not that some don't happen. But we have to understand the will of God, and we have to be careful what we ask. I think in terms of that and other blessings that might come from God that we do not see throughout the church today is that we have to grasp that God has essentially turned his face from the church. He cannot bear the lukewarmness and the various attitudes that he sees in us. So, at least figuratively or metaphorically, he's turned his face away. Now, that does not mean that he doesn't still count the hairs on our head and he knows who we are and what we're doing. He's still very much aware, and he still is very much involved in our lives. But what he is telling us is... I want this change because it's difficult to look at. And I turn my face from the evil that I see. So many of the gifts that we might think we should have right now, we don't have. So it is a matter of understanding the will of God here, in that He does not intend great healings at this time. And I have tried to tailor my anointings, the prayers that I give, to what I know God's will is right now. Why, how can I ask Him to do something that I know He has turned His face from at this time? And yet, I see sometimes true miracles where something indeed He does answer. But I can't always trust in it in the same way that perhaps I used to, because I know what his attitude and approach to the church is. It's kind of hands-off. <coughs> You're there to turn to me and find me. And when you turn to me and find me, then I will bestow these blessings upon you. That's what the Scriptures clearly say. So, what we have been seeing over the last 10, 12, 15 years, more is interventions as opposed to outright healings, where God will sometimes give us extra help or remove some symptoms or, let's say, put our problem in remission to one degree or another, but not reach in and completely heal us, as He sometimes used to do more frequently. And we have to understand that he is trying and testing our faith and our patience, even as he did those Old Testament people, to see if we will remain faithful even though we don't see the answers right now. And yet I can show you many scriptures, and have, that show he is going to restore these things to the last church, the last temple, the remnant that he gathers together, all these things will be restored and in completeness and the beauty of God's blessing. In the first month, whichever year, 
will come the former and the latter rains. And it will be spectacular. He promises that. He promises it there in Zechariah 3 and 4. He promises it in many, many scriptures. Do we believe him? Do we trust him? Do we know that that is going to happen? Now, occasionally, we do see a complete healing. I'm thinking of one that just pops in my mind some years ago when Cameron Kreider was just a little thing. The girls came running out of the house over there, screaming, there's something wrong with the baby, there's something wrong with the baby. And I ran over there, was just out working, didn't have any oil on me, asked for some olive oil quickly. The baby, the baby wasn't breathing, turned completely blue, looked dead. May not have been, but the breathing had stopped. As soon as I put the oil on her head and started praying, she grabbed her breath and her color came back and she's been fine ever since. So I think God absolutely intervenes there. And I could think of others, but that one just suddenly came to mind. Where God has done some, I think, spectacular interventions. Because I think that baby was as good as dead. If she hadn't started breathing, she would have been dead. But she did. So I'm not saying he never does. So we need to be careful that we pray the prayer of faith according to his will and understand that his will might be in some cases to completely intervene, but some cases he may be saying, wait, I'm trying your faith. I want to see. Will you turn to me? Will you be faithful? And he tells us when he is going to give those blessings back. When we've turned sufficiently with our whole hearts to him, and the time is right that he gives those former and latter rains all at once, as Joel 2 says. So, when we pray in faith, that means we need to be considering the words of God and the times when he is willing to go this far and the times when he is only willing to go that far. It is incumbent upon us and necessary for us to study His Word to understand His will at a particular time. For instance, Herbert Armstrong died not having received the promises, nor having taken the church to Petra, nor having done some of those things he thought he would do. He died. But you and I did not read Micah 4 and understand it before that happened, did we? It says there, our king is dead, our counselor has perished. And I think it is clear in the context, and in, clearly in the context, an end-time prophecy re regarding the church today. And Isaiah 1, there have been thieves but now murderers. I think there's a very good chance that he was murdered, that he was killed. Now, he, and I believe his son, were a type of the, the latter temple, but did not finish the job. And I think the parallel is there between Revelation 11, where it says the two witnesses will also be murdered, right at the end of the tribulation. So it only goes that he who was a lesser example of Zerubbabel and Joshua, he and his son, that he may have been murdered. And it fits with Isaiah 1, which goes into the church as well as physical Israel later and gives a history of the church here in the end time. I think you can make a pretty good case. Now, I'm not accusing anybody in particular, don't want to slander, uh, but on the other hand, uh, reports seem to indicate that, and it seems to be backed by Scripture. So it was God's will that it happened the way that it did. Herbert Armstrong did his job. He fulfilled it. He called many and baptized many, he and those that he sent out to do so. He finished that job, and then God allowed him to die. And now he is raising up. At some point, another work at the end where he will choose who to send as the remnant and they will be the ones who patiently wait and obey him.
So we have to study God's Word carefully to understand His will in our lives and His will in the lives of the whole church. And if we don't study His Word, we'll be caught unawares. And most of the church will. Ninety percent of the church will not respond when God begins to stir those to come to do His final work. Or at least for this age, His final work. His real work doesn't begin until the millennium, but this will be a microcosm of that as a witness to the world. Do we believe that? I do. I see it in the Scriptures. I absolutely believe it's going to happen. And I'm not going to waver on it whatsoever. And I hope that you don't either. Because it's promised. It will happen. According to His time and His way. But if we waver on the things God promises, then we can't please Him. But we better know what He promises, hadn't we? So that we can be in a position where we don't waver. For let not that man think that he shall receive anything of the eternal. So, if we're wishy-washy, if we waver back and forth, if we let ourselves be confused by this, that, or the other thing, then he says we won't receive anything of God. So it is truly, deeply important for all of us to study His Word very carefully and understand His will for now, His will for us. And then we can believe that without wavering. Anything that you see in God's Word and you're rock solid about, you don't waver on. But if you're unsure, you will waver. If you haven't proved it, you will waver. And if you do, you won't receive anything from God. God is looking for those who will absolutely believe Him and His Word. Absolute trust in Him. That He has our best interests in mind, and that He is a rewarder of them that diligently obey Him, as it says there in Hebrews. Verse 8, a double-minded man is unstable in all his ways. You see, you vacillate, you waver, you're confused because you're being pulled this way and being pulled that way. That causes instability emotionally, mentally, and spiritually. So we have to be very careful that we're not getting mixed signals, if you will. We need to be careful that we are reading God's Word carefully and understanding what He wants. But we can waver between the desires of the flesh for worldly things, for immediate uh, satisfaction or whatever it is that we might want. And the world in some ways might be tempting, and Satan's ways might be tempting. And the way the normal human mind works is according to the works of the flesh, if you want to read them there in Galatians 5. That is the way our minds tend to want to think. Carnally, selfishly, and to put ourselves above others and to do things our way. That's just the way our mind is programmed by Satan and by the world around us. So you can't be double-minded, single-minded. And Christ put it a little different way. He says, no man can serve two masters. We either serve God in His way, or we serve Satan in His way. And if our attitudes and the things we do and say are the way Satan does them, then we are double-minded because we're claiming to be Christian, and yet we're doing things Satan's way. And we're not showing the fruit of His Spirit, but we're showing the fruit or the works of the flesh and of Satan. So we have to be very, very careful. I want to receive the blessings of God, and you want to receive the blessings of God. And he's telling us here how to do that. To utterly and absolutely believe what he says, and to do that, you need to know what he says. 
and then believe it and follow through on it. Otherwise, you are double-minded and you're unstable and vacillating back and forth and subject to being confused. What's there to be confused about? God says, this is the way, walk you in it. He says also that there is a way that seems right to a man, but the ends thereof are the ways of death. Proverbs 14, 12, and 16, 25. Satan's way, or doing things the way he does them, seem right to men. Because it goes, they go right along with our base and carnal appetites and desires and selfishness. So they seem right to us. Oh, this seems right for me to do right now. But is that according to what God says we are to do? And how and when and where we are to do it? Or do we sometimes, because of our human nature, forget wisdom, the way of God, and go our own way, and later on we think, Oh, how did I get caught up in that? How did I do that? How did I think that? Because it is so easy for us to block out what God says, because the only thing we can think about is what we want at the moment. And it crowds out His way. It crowds out His instruction. Because we're just simply responding to our nature. And so He's warning us, don't be that way. Believe what He says and do what He says. And then you will receive wisdom, and you will receive blessings. Verse 9, Let the brother of low degree rejoice in that he is exalted. Now, how is that? Well, for the most part, we're weak in base, he says there in Corinthians. We are not the mighty and the noble. So, if we, who are not much, or nothing, if you put it in Christ's words, really, We're nothing eternal. (laughs) We're nothing that of ourselves is going to live beyond 70, 80, 90 years, and maybe not even that long. And we're not mighty and noble by any means. How are we exalted? Well, we're candidates to be kings and priests in the kingdom of God. So we of low degree have been exalted by God the Father and His Son, by calling us to the truth, giving us an opportunity, and allowing us to learn His ways and follow them so that we might have life eternal. Now, if that is not an exaltation, I don't know what is. We're candidates to be the very bride of the King of the universe, King of kings and Lord of lords. Now, that's quite an exaltation. Nothing to be proud of. It's something that will be at least salvation, offered to everyone at one time or another. But not many are going to be offered brideship with Christ. Only 144,000. Now, there'll be more offered, but only that many will accept and follow through and actually accomplish that. But the rich, and that he is made low. Because as the flower of grass, he shall pass away. So there are those who think they're really something because of success in business or money or beauty or whatever it is that they think makes them special above anyone else. So they already think they're special. So they have to be then humbled to accept true greatness. You have those of us who have insecurities, who have low self-esteem, who feel unqualified, and they have to be somehow led to believe, made to understand that they are important to God because they have deep inferiority complexes based on any number of things that may have happened in their lives. So they have to be picked up, helped, and in that sense exalted, or made to understand the potential they have 
and that God cares about them very deeply. And that helps get rid of their feelings of inferiority, their depressions, their moods, and so on, if they, if they truly grasp what it is God has for us. Let me use an example where he says, Of some have compassion making a difference. I think that's right here at the end of James. And others jerk out of the fire. You have to understand when to use which tactic. Some who may tend to be depressed or feel unworthy or unneeded or unimportant or for whatever reason worthless, they have to be shown compassion and pulled forward. Others who think they're pretty special have to be sat on or jerked out of the fire. So you've got to know with whom you're dealing and use the correct tactic for each one. And that's kind of what he's saying here, that there's, there's two kinds of people, those who feel superior and those who feel un, un, inferior. And we're all a mixture of those things, but our personality will tend more toward one side or the other. But I think most people feel inferior one way or another, and sometimes they act superior to try to cover up for their inferior feelings. Verse 11, For the sun has no sooner risen with a burning heat, but it withers the grass, and the flower thereof falls, and the grace of the fashion of it perishes. So also shall the rich man fade away in his ways. He trusts in his riches, his abilities, and God says it's going to be just like a camel going through a needle's eye for him to enter the kingdom of God. So those who feel superior have to be humbled. And you know, that is what James is saying right here in so many words, really, is quoted from Isaiah 40, which is a very important part of the end time message. I'll turn back there. Here he talks about the voice crying in the wilderness as John the Baptist did and how a wilderness we have before us today. And preaching has to be done. First thing he says is, Comfort you, comfort you, my people, says your God. Now, his people have been scattered and the church has been essentially destroyed and is falling apart across the board. So how do you comfort people under these circumstances? Well, you use the Scriptures that show how God is going to turn this around and how He's going to save the remnant out of it and how He's going to make His church successful. And that many will also repent during the tribulation and become successful as part of the Bride of Christ as well. And that this war that we are fighting right now will end in verse 2. But he says in verse 6, the voice said, cry, and he said, what shall I cry? In other words, what is the message to be? All flesh is grass, and all the goodliness thereof is as the flower of the field. The grass withers, the flower fades, because the Spirit of the Eternal blows upon it. Surely the people is grass. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. So what God has done to the church is blow his breath, perhaps allowing Satan to do the dirty work, as he often does, and the fruit are the works of Satan and of the flesh to cause splintering and division and confusion. But the message is, but God is going to cause the whole thing to wither. But the Word of God will stand. Now he says those who then will follow the Word of God will also stand and will survive the withering hot winds that come upon the church. And he said they will. So ultimately... Maybe James had Isaiah 40 in mind when he wrote this. I don't know, but he says almost exactly the same thing. We can't trust 
in anything on this earth, riches, anything else, we got to trust in God and turn to Him and not be double-minded and unstable. Rich people tend to be unstable. Unstable how? Well, they're double-minded. They might give God lip service, but they truly trust in money and the things of this world to make their lives the way they want them. He says that has to all go away. Rich man's going to fade away in his ways. Verse 12, Blessed is the man that endures temptation. For when he is tried, he shall receive the crown of life, which the eternal is promised to them that love him. Love means obey. Read 1 John. It can be an emotional thing, but it is also a realistic thing that we keep his commandments and, and treat him with the very highest respect and treat our fellow man the same way as we would treat God. Now, we'll all be tempted, won't we? We just simply have to endure it, and it is not easy. When we're tempted with wrong thoughts or wrong actions, it is so very easy to find a way to justify them, to follow through with them. But those people in Hebrews 11 fought that. They didn't always win, did they? Sometimes they had to repent, they had to turn around, they had to go the other way when they had done wrong. And many of them did. You can go back through. I mean, God talks of them as those who are going to be in the kingdom of God as the bride of Christ in the first resurrection. And yet, if you go back in their lives, you will find many sins, many faults, many problems with most of them. He doesn't enumerate them all, but he does enough to let us see that they fought the same things we fought. And God caused David, because he broke every one of them, caused him to write all those psalms about what he went through and how hard it was and how he struggled to do what was right and struggled to have the right attitude. It wasn't easy. And God uses him to impart that to us. Now, they all had the same struggle, but his is made more open and used as an example to help us Verse 13, let no man say when he is tempted, I am tempted of God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, neither tempts he any man. God does not lay temptations upon us, temptations to sin. He just doesn't do it. Now, he does lay chastening on us. He'll paddle us in various ways. Hebrews 12 makes that very, very clear so that we might strengthen our knees and our legs and stand. So he does punish, he does chasten, but he does not tempt at all. But every man is tempted when he is drawn away of his own lust and enticed. Enticed by his appetites and desires, whatever they might be. And that can be a wide gamut of things. Human beings find so many, many ways to depart from the ways of God. Now, he doesn't mention Satan here. Uh, he mentions human nature, which is what tempts us the most. Satan also is a tempter. But what does he play on? He plays on our natural tendencies. He plays on our human desires and appetites and uses them to help lead us astray. And there are good examples of that. Adam and Eve were tempted of Satan to eat of the wrong thing, to partake of what they should not have taken. Uh, Satan tempted Christ himself very greatly. What did he use? He tried to find vanity and pride in Christ in offering him the kingdoms of the world if he would serve him. He tried to play on Christ's appetites, even righteous appetites, like food and water after 40 days of fasting. Christ was very hungry and very thirsty. So even on something that is not normally wrong for us, Satan tempted him in a wrong way to partake of things in a wrong fashion. See, there's where wisdom comes in. Is it the will of God 
that I give in to Satan and eat and drink those things which might be normally legal for me. No, he wasn't going to give in to Satan and have the wrong thing at the wrong time. Food and drink were to be used at the right time. And giving Satan an advantage by partaking of those things, which can be right at the right time, but wrong at the wrong time, was what he tried to use on him. Uh, another example, Paul said that a man and woman to have the right kind of, of a marriage relationship and that they were not to withhold that from each other except for fasting and prayer and then they were to come together again that way that they be not tempted by Satan. So Satan can use there again a normal and right desire and a normal and right function within marriage to tempt us to do wrong if we don't do things the way God said to do them within the marriage. So there are lots of examples in the Bible where Satan does indeed tempt us. And he certainly does. But it is our human nature and our human desires that he tempts us to misuse, abuse, and do the wrong thing with. And it is a natural progression here, verse 15. Then when lust has conceived, lust for whatever it might be, it brings forth sin. If you think about something long enough, or hard enough, or whatever, uh, eventually it's going to lead you into sin. That's why we have to bring every thought into the captivity of Christ, and that is a very, very difficult thing to do. Because sometimes even natural and right desires have to be suppressed until the right and proper time. And that is not easy. And sin, when it is finished, brings forth death. That is, unless we can come under the blood of Christ and be forgiven, which we can. That is the greatest thing, is it not? That we can do things that would bring death upon us, breaking God's law in whatever form or fashion. And Christ's sacrifice is big enough to remove whatever sin it may have been. It doesn't matter. Absolute, outright idolatry can be forgiven. Any sin can be forgiven through the blood of Christ. Wow. And we have come under that blood, have we not? That which would lead us to death can be waived. It can be removed. Because we have all lusted after whatever it might be that was wrong, and we have all ultimately sinned, and we face the death penalty. Thank God that he sent his Son, who was willing, to give his life for us. And as we come to the Passover season, I think that's a good thought to bring into this. Because we're getting close to the time that celebrates or observes the time when he died for us. And... We can be clean and free of sin. That is another reason that Satan is so absolutely the opposite of God. His is to accuse us of sin, to hope that we die. God's view and Christ's view is to remove sin, and it is His glory to cover it, not to repeat it, but to cover it. Just the opposite of Satan. That's why he tells us to help cover each other's sin. If we find that someone has sinned against us, he says, you go to that person alone. You don't tell anybody else. You go to them alone. And you discuss it with them. And it does not give you any right once you've discussed it with them, to go discuss it with anyone else. We need to understand that. It is God's glory to conceal it, to cover it, to hide it, to get rid of it under the blood of Christ. 
We have been removed from the death penalty, brethren. All of us. What a wonderful thing that is. And we need to recognize that in each other. He says, Do not err, my beloved brethren. Verse 17, Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above and comes down from the Father of lights, or lights, with whom is no variableness, neither shadow of turning. So when he tells us up there not to be unstable or double-minded, he's telling us to be like him. He is always forgiving if our attitudes are such that we're willing to come out of sin, to recognize it, or as he says, to confess and forsake it, not to man, but to God. Confess our sins to God and forsake them, and he will forgive. But he has no variableness. He is consistent. His spirit is always patient. It is always kind. It is always loving. It is always forgiving. Now, he gets angry at times, and he's consistent in what he gets angry about and how angry he gets, but his anger is always short-lived, and his forgiveness is forgiving, or forgiveness is complete and entire. The penalty is removed. No shadow of turning. He is just absolutely rock-solid, stable. He believes his word, he swears by his word, and he can, we can't, swear by ours because we're so fraught with inconsistency and double-mindedness and incapacity to say and do the wrong thing. But he's not. He will always be stable, and he tells us to be like he is. Of his own will begat he us with the word of truth. Each and every one of us here who is baptized into the truth of God has been handpicked by God to be what we are. You do not, you are not baptized once you understand that, understood the truth without God being absolutely, totally involved in your life. He was there then, and He is there now. And he is working with each and every one of us, by name and by hair count, to get us into his kingdom. And he is overseeing this destruction of the church to see who will be faithful, who will be strong, who will believe him, who will trust him, and come through this having endured to the end. He has begat us with the word of truth that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. We're part of the first fruits. Or destined to be if we follow through. Don't fall off the tree, or don't get rotten, or don't get bird pecked, or Satan pecked, or whatever kind of pecked we get. Wherefore, my beloved brethren, now, there must have been some problems within Israel, within the church, where James sent this message. There must have been human beings. There must have been infractions of God's way. There must have been imperfection. He calls them beloved brethren, but he knew they had problems. So he says, Wherefore, my beloved, knowing what we know about God and His stability and His plan and how He's called each and every one of us to be part of the Bride of Christ. Understanding that, He says, be swift to hear. Rush to hear. Hurry to hear. Listen quickly. Listen with a ready mind. Listen with a desire to learn and to grow. That is a good characteristic, is to be quick to listen. As has been said many times by many different people, we have two eyes, we have two ears, we have one mouth. Remember the ratio. Kind of what he's saying here. My beloved brethren, let every man be very quick to listen. 
slow to speak and slow to anger. Those are the characteristics of God that He would have us have. Now, to be human is just the opposite of that. We'll be very quick to speak, will we not? Most of us. We'll say what's on our mind, whether we ought to or not. And if it's something that is evil or negative or bad or wrong, we should not say it at all. Or only to the person who is involved. But we generally are very quick to repeat, to say things that we might hear or imagine or think to be true or whatever. Or to point out sin or falsehood or lacks in one another. We're very quick to do that as human beings. And we can get angry with one another very easily and upset with one another. That is human to do those things quickly. So he's telling us to be just the opposite. Don't be like man and Satan. Be like God. He is very slow to anger, he himself says. And we're to be like him. We shouldn't let people get our goat. We shouldn't let them anger us. Swift to hear, slow to speak, and slow to wrath. I think I should turn to this verse about every day. <laughs> I think we all should. To be reminded. Now, I don't think I'll do that, and I don't think you'll do that. I'm just saying. We need to keep this one in mind. Because it is so human to err in this area. Every one of us breaks verse 19 probably almost every day of our lives in one way or another. We don't mean to, but it's so easy to get drawn into it. So easy to listen to it. So easy to do it. That has, if we're going to have peace, that has to stop. It just has to. You can't have peace apart from the fruit of God's Spirit. And to be Swift to speak and swift to anger are works of the flesh. They're not the fruit of the Spirit of God. His is peace and patience. So there's a lesson here for the whole church and for us as individuals. For the wrath of man works not the righteousness of God. It is so easy for human beings to be angry. We all can get angry so quickly, can't we? If we feel our toes are stepped on or, or somebody makes some social faux pas or says something about us that offends us so easily. Human beings wear chips on their shoulders, chips on their arms, chips on their head. we got chips everywhere, it seems. We are so easily offended if we are slighted in any way. And we can get so angry and so frustrated and so mad about what somebody says or does to us. It is so easy. It is so natural. But angry people do not work the righteousness of God. It's just the opposite of God. He is very slow to anger. Well, why don't we stop right there for today? Because I think verse 19 and verse 20 are a, a good thing for us all to think about. Because they are, what he's saying here is godliness is just the opposite of the way human beings tend to be. So, uh, if there's a lesson we get out of this, if we're to be stable, if we're to believe God and trust God, then we have to do it in these areas of our relationships with human beings. Because that demonstrates to him that we will not be like Satan the devil. Satan the devil will not be in the kingdom of God. And the works of the devil, the ways of the devil, if we portray them in our lives, will not be there either. So we have to quit being like we naturally are, and like Satan is, and letting him take advantage of us, 
and cause us to do the things that hurt one another. Because the kingdom of God is going to be a very, very peaceful place. He tells us no more tears, no more frustration, no more death, no more of the things that frustrate and hurt human beings will ever be part of our lives again in the kingdom of God. And we are here to begin to live that way. And if we do, then God says He will use us to help bring peace as peacemakers to the whole world. So I think that's a a good place to leave it for today.